As we open up, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews for quite some time, okay? For quite some time. So when you come to church, you're probably going to end up having it where your Bible flips open to Hebrews when you come into the service uh, for the next several weeks, potentially months. It's going to be a little while. But there's a lot to cover in Hebrews. Hebrews has got a lot of different things that we could take and apply to our lives uh, each and every day. The greatest thing about Hebrews is, is what the author writes about. He writes about Jesus. The whole book of Hebrews is about Jesus. It's about how Jesus is greater. He's greater than so many things. In this first book, uh, first set of verses we're looking at, we're just looking at verses 1 through 4. A lot of this morning's sermon is going to kind of fill you in about what's going on. Now today, just as in, in view of introduction and the fact that the NBA playoffs have started, there's always this argument about who the greatest player is in the history of basketball. Now, I'll say this. In today's culture, everything's based upon about a 30-second, 60-second, or 90-second clip of an athlete doing this, that, or the other. A lot of people don't get to see how Bill Russell played the game, who was probably one of the, probably the best basketball player to ever play the game, uh, but they don't see that because we don't have TikToks and Instagrams and Reels and all these different type things like that. Uh, Bill Russell was phenomenal, great athlete. And the thing about basketball is this. Basketball, you put the ball in anybody's hands, anybody could be a scorer, okay? It's not like football where you got a quarterback and the only way the wide receiver gets the ball is if the quarterback throws it to said wide receiver, okay? A little bit different to argue who the greatest is in football, Okay, because everything comes from the center to the quarterback, and it's got to pass through those hands almost every single time. Okay, so it's kind of hard to gauge who's the greatest athlete in that. In baseball, you've got nine different positions, and if your pitcher throws a no-hitter, it's basically just him and the catcher in the whole game, right? Now, don't get me wrong, that makes you a phenomenal pitcher, which I think Nolan Ryan's one of the greatest. You know, he's thrown the most no-hitters of anybody, but... In basketball, it's an argument that's going to happen. And we know in generations, they played the game, the style was different, right? The style was different. I still and will always say that I believe Michael Jordan was the best basketball player to ever play the game. But I think Bill Russell's probably number two, and I don't know who number three would be. It, it gets to be a toss-up after those two. Um, if Pete Maravich would have not had a shortened life, I think Pete Maravich would have been in that top five argument. One of the greatest shooters to ever play the game. I mean, he's phenomenal. And on top of that, he's given his life to Christ, and I really appreciate that. So, and he lived it. So, but, but you got Michael Jordan, it's up here in my book, heads and shoulders above everybody else. Bill Russell, the next closest. And then there's several that's vying for that third spot. But I want to tell you this. In our world today, there's nobody, nobody, no prophet, priest, earthly king, nobody that comes remotely close to the greatness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the greatest. And the author of Hebrews, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, whomever that person may be, the author of Hebrews will like to argue with whomever they're writing this. Some people say they believe that uh, Hebrews is not like any of the other books of the New Testament. Hebrews, they even believe, may have been an essay on how great Jesus is. But as we look at this, we could come to this conclusion, and in the first four verses, <coughs> excuse me, in the first four verses, we realize that Jesus is greater than the prophets. 
Jesus is greater than the prophets. Next week, we're going to look at how Jesus is greater than angels. But this morning, we're looking at how Jesus is greater than prophets. So if you have your copy of God's Word, look there in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and of holding all things by the word of his power, when he sat down, excuse me, word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Let's pray, church. Father, we come to you now. We worship you. We worship the one true God. We come to the one that is greater than all that had come before. That is Jesus Christ. We come before him, in him, through him, by him, by the grace of that he has given us by, the, by his blood that's been applied to us, we come through him. And God, I pray, Lord, today that as we begin this new series looking into this letter, God, that you'll give us clarity as to who you are, the Son of God. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to understand your power, your authority, your position, all about who you are as we walk step by step through this letter to the Hebrews. Lord, I pray, God, if someone is here and they don't know who you are, they don't know who Jesus is, Lord, today, by this expounding on the Word of God, Lord, that someone will come to faith in Jesus Christ, they will forsake their sins and themselves, and they will turn to you and profess you and confess you as Lord of their lives, and you will save them, save them to the uttermost, and seal them through the Holy Ghost until the day of their redemption. God, I pray, Lord, that you'll bless this reading of your word, this preaching of your word, Lord. And may we ever be humbled by being able to be in the presence of your word. God, whether that be in our homes, in our Sunday school classes, in this preaching hour, whatever it may be. God, let us humble ourselves before you, the one who gives us life. And Lord, may we graciously offer back our praise in all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few things before we just dive off into this passage of Scripture. A few things that I want to point out to you is the authorship. Now, like I said, this morning it's going to be a little different. Probably about half the sermon I'm going to spend just explaining the book. The book, the letter to the Hebrews. Okay? The authorship, some ascribe authorship to Paul. Although in time, this thought has been proven is untrue. The writing of Hebrews is so dynamically different from anything else Paul has written throughout the whole New Testament. Most of everything that Paul writes, 50% of it is theological. The other 50% is applicable or practical. And so Hebrews is not that way. This is very much a treatise on how Christ is greater. The whole thing stepped from the, right from the beginning. So we know that the writing is a different style of writing. And there's no argument that Paul could have written this. And some have said Paul maybe did write this. 
But overall, the consensus is, is obviously there is no consensus that Paul was definitely the author. Why is that? Well, first off, the author references himself as a second-generation believer. The New American Standard Bible has it phrased this way in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 through 4a. And it says, after, and after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them. So this author of Hebrews is saying, look, I, I didn't hear this firsthand. I heard this secondhand. Paul never referred to himself in that way. Paul did refer to himself as one who was born uh, out of time, at, at an untimely manner, which means he didn't get to see Christ walk the earth. Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and gave him his mission to the Gentiles. But we see here, this author says that, that he, I was a second generation. Some of the, some of the classic commentators that are out there, have argued for different authors. The Tertullian, he claimed that it was Barnabas that wrote this book. Barnabas was a Levite, and there is much about Levitical rites in this epistle. In Acts, Barnabas is called the son of encouragement, and in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22, the language of my word is encouragement is used. But this is not concrete proof that Barnabas was the author. Luther, Martin Luther, thought the author could be Apollos. Several modern scholars believe this to be true. In Acts, Luke wrote that Apollos was an eloquent man, and there is indeed eloquence in this epistle as you read it. Apollos had a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. We find that out from Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Apollos was from Alexandria, but yet again, this is not conclusive. He was a well-versed, well-knowledgeable, very intelligent man to be able to write this. And then another commentator by the last name of Harnock, he considered Aquila as the author, which is very interesting, very, very out of the norm. As the author, uh, since the author is nameless, never named in the book, and a woman would have never been accepted in the canon. There is no definitive statement that mends to this idea, or lends to this idea, excuse me. And it stands against several uses of masculine pronouns uh, and participles. Origen, a well-known theologian, wrote, Who wrote the epistle? God only knows the truth. God only knows the truth. I don't know, from everything I read, I would probably lean more toward Apollos than the others. But who am I? I'm just, I'm just Blake Prater. So, uh, but these other smarter fellows that have been around for a long time uh, cling that there's various people, but Origen said, who wrote the epistle? God only knows. So I want you to know this. It was accepted by the original uh, people who canonized and brought the Word of God together to, write, to put this epistle in the Word of God. So they believed that it was absolutely inspired by God. So who was the, Hebrews, the epistle of the Hebrews written to? Anybody can tell me? The Hebrews. <laughs> the Hebrews. That's right. Very good. It's not very complicated in that. Um, but this is something about those folks is this. That's right. It's called the Epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, the readers of this book were familiar with the Old Testament and knew the ritual book of Leviticus and the details of the tabernacle because obviously the author references these things as if they should know them. And so he knew that's who it was. 
They were not eyewitnesses to Jesus, but they had learned of him uh, from those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. These that he is writing to, those, these Hebrews that he is writing to, they had faced extreme persecution, but not to the point of martyrdom. And they were struggling in their faith. Some were even falling away from the faith. Many are thought to have considered returning to Judaism to avoid the persecution. And the author warns them against apostasy and urged them to return to the mainstream Christian fellowship. So this is, this is much of the encouragement as you see this. You know, we've got one of a, a verse that I've quoted many a times over the years. It says, do not forsake the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And the author of Hebrews was writing to the church saying, don't, don't forsake it. Don't turn back to what you turned from. Keep staying with the truth. Don't abandon the truth. That's an iconic verse that... Most of us pastors and youth pastors have used for a long time. Don't forsake the gathering together. And that's part of that. They were, they were uh, concerned. The author was concerned of their falling away or possibly returning to Judaism. So when was this written? Uh, I told you I was going to cover a lot of this stuff, get these basics out of the way. The letter was written before 64 A.D. It was written before 64 A.D. Why, why do they know that? Because Nero came into power and began persecuting and killing Christians. And so uh, this was before he began murdering them. They were just being persecuted. They were being persecuted, but not to the extreme that Nero was going to exercise against them. The temple was still standing, and Jews were still sacrificing during this time and maintaining the Levitical customs. So we know it wasn't too far divorced from Jesus' resurrection. And they were just a second generation. They were just a generation away from Christ and him uh, rising from the grave. So the common agreement on the letter, uh, on when the letter was written, is between 60 and 63 A.D. Now some characteristics of the letter, and after I give this, then we'll start jumping into the scripture. It was written in a style common to Greek writing. That means it is elegant and highly literary. Uh, Greek culture, they, these folks, they were always, they were very philosophical. They were, they were very intellectual, uh, very astute in their studies. They, they were, they, the first universities and educational systems came uh, from, from this area. And so they, they were not unintelligent people when, when the arguments were given about who Christ was. And when Hebrews was written, it was written in a very highly, a uh, high literary uh, argumentative way. Uh, to argue for who Christ is. And there, there will be many quotes from the Old Testament in the effort to emphasize how Jesus is greater than the Levitical rites and customs. There are more than 20 names and titles for Jesus in this letter. More than 20. And although there is clear reference to the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ is emphasized more than in most New Testament writings. He's warning the readers. He's warning those in uh, the Hebrews to grasp how Christ is familiar with everything that you and I go through. He's not divorced from those things. He dealt with those. I talked a little bit about that last week in my Easter sermon, talking about the burdens and talking about the, uh, the binding. And um, there was one more B. I can't remember what it is right now, but I talked about that last week. You can make a list of it. Um, but this is also a letter of warnings not to neglect salvation in Christ. 
not to neglect your salvation in Christ. And this letter is also considered to be a theological essay or sermon defining the fullness of Christ and his righteousness over works righteousness. So now, let's get into the scripture. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It starts off and it says, God. Very much like Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created. There isn't this argument about who God is. It's not about what God can do. It's about God. And when the, when the author of this book wrote uh, this letter, he starts off and he says, God spoke. And you see that. Uh, I've, I've, many years in teaching students, I tell them, always understand English. When you, when you read, the, the people who translated this translated it into English so we can grasp what is being said. And so he says, God, and then he kind of explains how he spoke, but he says, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers and the prophets, but in these last days spoken to us by his son. The two things that it's talking about is God speaking. God is not inaudible. He is not absent. He is present among us. And he is a God who speaks. And he speaks in a variety of ways. So the first thing that the author wants us to know is that God speaks. And uh, when, when he speaks, he is not one that sits back and is entertained by our lack of floundering or ignorance. God says, God speaks to us. He brings us into the story. Because it's his story, and he speaks to us, and he wants us to come into it. And God communicates, as it says in the, in the latter days, he speaks through his son. But in various times and various ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. So he communicates through his chosen prophets to reveal his will and his plan for mankind. That's how God speaks. And today, God communicates through his word, first and foremost, so that each and every single individual can know and understand the word of God. He speaks through his word. He, he speaks through preachers. He speaks uh, through himself directly to those who are redeemed by him and pursue him. That's how God speaks today. But predominantly, he speaks through his word. If someone ever tells you that God spoke to them and it's counter to the word of God, it wasn't God speaking to them. God will never go against what's already in here, in his word. When God speaks, God speaks truth, and truth does not change. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other truth out there but Jesus. And if you want to know truth, you go to the word of God. Today in our culture, many want truth to change, but God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you can trust what's in the word of God. So we trust it, and that's how he communicates. And so when we dive into this word, and we, we get to hear God in his word speak to us, we get to hear God speak to us through his word, through our preachers and teachers, and we get to hear God himself when he speaks to us. We get to hear that. But it's for those that hear and understand that are able to pursue him. And know what this means. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can read this all day long and you're never going to grasp what God is saying. 
until you have a relationship with Jesus. These are printed words on sheets of paper that have big titles on the top and are broken apart by numbers. But when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, this is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. But I want you to understand, there's many people who say, well, I've read the Bible front and back, and their life has no revelation that Christ is in it whatsoever. You know why? Because you're not saved. You're not saved. If, you're gonna, if your life, if you're going to read the Bible, it's going to work in and through you because it's living and active. It's not going to be like, I read the Bible, no big deal. It, reading the Bible is a big deal. And it's a challenge. You know why it's a challenge? Because the devil don't want you to do it. If you can read through the whole Bible, then it's very likely you're not doing much else. Now, I'm not telling you not to read through the whole Bible. But if you never come into any conflict with your time of reading the Bible, you're probably not doing much for Jesus outside of reading your Bible. Somewhere along the way, you've got to say, I'm going to discipline myself to the intake of God's Word. I've got to discipline myself. I've got to discipline myself to the reading of God's word because God speaks through his word. How else does God speak? God spoke. It's very clear right there. Very first word in this, in this epistle is God. And it emphasizes he spoke. He spoke to fathers and prop, to, to the fathers by the prophets. And he has spoken to us in the last days by his son. And he speaks by his word. So he spoke to the forefathers. Who are the forefathers? Well, that's such as Moses, Abraham, and David. That's our forefathers. And although these men are not always considered in the, if you will, bracketing of prophets, um, they prophesied on behalf of God from time to time. God spoke through prophets to communicate the message of the one true God so they may uh, lead as needed. Think about this. God spoke to Adam and Eve and the serpent directly about the conflict and war between Satan and the seed. God spoke to Abraham about how from his family will come the blessing of nations. God spoke to Jacob that through the tribe of Judah, the Redeemer will come for Israel. In Psalm 132, God revealed to David that the Christ would come through his lineage. That's how God spoke to the forefathers. He spoke to them. God spoke through the prophets. The prophets were the friends of God, but Jesus is the Son of God. But God spoke through those prophets, those prophets such as Hosea and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Malachi. God spoke through those prophets to the forefathers. And then the prophets grasped part of the mind of God, but Jesus, when he came, and as the epistle and as the author writes here, he is the fullness of God. Jesus is the fullness of God. To Malachi, God revealed there would be a forerunner of the Christ to come and to prepare the way. To Zechariah, God revealed that the Christ would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. To Isaiah, it was clearly revealed that Christ would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and that Jehovah would lay on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53. And to the psalmist, God revealed the manner of death of Christ. They pierced my hands and feet. That's Psalm 22, 16. That's how he spoke to the prophets and how he spoke through the prophets to the forefathers. How did he speak? Well, the scripture right there in verse 1 says he spoke at various times and in various ways. 
What does that mean? Uh, Lewis Evans, out of the Communicator's Commentary, wrote about the various times, God did not reveal all of himself at any one time. The process of revelation was a continuous one in which the recipients received an ever-increasing revelation of God. And then William Barclay went on to write, for instance, Amos is a cry for social justice. Isaiah had grasped the holiness of God. Hosea, because of his own bitter home experience, had realized the wonder of the forgiving love of God. Each prophet, out of his own experience of life and out of the experience of Israel, had grasped and expressed a fragment of the truth of God. That's the reason why it's important for us to read all the prophets, because different prophets experience different characteristics of God. So many people say the God of the Old Testament was a wrathful God. Well, yeah, he was. But he was also a gracious God. He was a forgiving God. He was a God who never uh, left anybody. He, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He was a rescuing God. He was a redeeming God. He was a patient God. But yet so many people say, they just looked all the times when God said, wipe these folks out, wipe these folks out, you know. And they forget that in the part of wiping out these other folks, it was God's grace on the Israelites that was being shown. God's characteristics are not limited to one or the other. It's not God of the Old Testament's wrathful, God of the New Testament is all love. The bottom line is, all of the Bible says that God is holy. God is holy. That's his defining characteristic. It's the only characteristic that's mentioned three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that wasn't from the lips of mankind. That's from the angels who were around the throne. They, they, they had seen God. They had seen him from, from their time of creation. They had seen him. They knew he was holy. He was set apart. He was different. And they, they, don't, they don't get to experience all the characteristics of God and his Jesus Christ as we do. The scripture tells us. They look, they look upon what we have fondly, wishful thinking that they could have what we have. Because they have not got to experience all of, all of who God is as we get to. So at various times... God spoke. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. Again, this is Hebrews, this author writing and, and telling the folks about who God was in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about that and who he is, who Jesus is. And he spoke in various ways. He spoke at various times and in various ways. He's, obviously, he spoke through speech. He spoke through dramatic action. We can find various accounts in 1 Kings, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, different places where he took dramatic action. God employed dreams. He employed visions and events as well as the direct communication through speech to announce, excuse me, his truth. And this fragmented revelation, Homer A. Kent Jr. wrote in his commentary, this fragmented revelation points to the graciousness and versatility of God in matching his revelation to the capacity of men to understand it. Okay? As, as men and, and mankind could come to understand it and grasp it, that's how God revealed it. God wasn't just like, okay, y'all ready? Here's the fire hydrant. And he flicked the switch and everything came out at one time because we wouldn't have been able to handle it. Nobody would have been able to handle all those things. So God, little bit by little bit, would show them this, this, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is who I am in this situation. This is who I am. And little bit by little bit throughout the Old Testament, it gets peppered in there, all the different characteristics of who Christ is and who God is. Because he knew 
we would, we would not be able to understand it if it hit us full on flush in the face. In verse 2a, God speaks to us through his son. You start there at the very first 1-1. One, one. God, and then you've got a comma, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. God has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So when we read this text, we must understand that this is the completion of God's revelation. This is the completion of God's revelation. There is no ongoing progressive revelation today of who God is. If somebody's teaching that, that's incorrect. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus has fulfilled all that there needed to be to fulfill, to know who God is. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. I only speak what the Father gives me, is what Jesus says. So we, we see that all of the completion, all of the revelation that needed to be done was done in Jesus. It was all done in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the finale of communication. So it is from him that we get these things. God is still speaking. But that is, that is to come through the Son, not vessels filled with God, but God himself incarnate. It was to come through the Son. He's spoken in these last days through Jesus Christ. So now we get into the, 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 the big part. The Son's sevenfold description. The Son's sevenfold description as to who he is. And so as we look through this, uh, we'll walk through the latter part of verse 2 all the way down to the end of verse 4. The latter part of verse 2 says this. It says about the Son, He is the one who is appointed heir of all things. In Psalm chapter 2, the psalmist wrote of how God places His anointed one upon the Messianic throne and grants Him the earth and its people as an inheritance. He is the heir of all things. Jesus, when he finished his work on the cross, Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father. We'll hear that in just a moment. And the, foot, and the earth is his footstool. Why is that? Because he has now been given the name that is above all other names. He, is the, he rules and reigns, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is appointed heir of all things. Secondly, the Son is through whom God made the worlds. It says, through whom also he made the worlds. Um, this is reflective of Genesis 1, John 1, and Colossians 1, where those authors clearly emphasize the creation being the total work of the Trinity through Christ. In Colossians 1, uh, it talks about how the world was created. It was created in him, through him, by him, and it is sustained or maintained through him. We sing the classic hymn, How Great Thou Art, which has the lyric, O Lord my God. When I, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. He is the one through whom everything was made. All the worlds were made through Christ. I love this little video online that I see. It comes up from time to time again. And there's these three scientists sitting over at this one table and this other preacher fella. And he's sitting over there, and he's, man, this guy is smarter than you could ever fathom. And he's like, and, and they're talking about this, and, and he talks about how the creation of the world comes about. And he says, you can't have 
matter without space and time. You can't have time without space and matter. You can't have space without time and matter. He said they all had to come together at one time because one cannot exist without, they're a triad, they're a trinity of trinities is what he says. And this dude sounds a whole lot more intelligent than I do. So if you find that, I mean, he just, he just blows their mind. And, and I, I'm just like, I want to hear this clip over and over again. And why is that? Because Christ is the vessel. Christ, in the beginning, it tells us that the Spirit hovered over the depths and God spoke and these things came into existence. And God, through Jesus Christ, the Logos, everything is created in Him and through Him and for Him and for His glory. He is through whom God made the worlds. The Son is also the possessor of deity as the radiance of glory. Look there in verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory. Different translations say that different ways. That's the reason why I quoted it this way. The Son is the possessor of deity as the radiance of glory. Barclay wrote, this is a big one to explain due to the original language, but I'll put it simply. The original word meant the light that shines forth. This means Jesus is the shining of God's glory among men. The sun reflects the Father's spotless purity. It's like the rays cannot exist apart from the sun. And you see the rays because the sun exists. That's Christ. We see Christ because we know the Father exists. God exists. Jesus is the rays. Jesus is the radiance. He is the brightness of God's glory. He is the one in John 1, I believe it's 14, where it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the fullness, the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily. That is who Jesus Christ is. He, the Son is the express image of God's person. This is the fifth point. This is the fifth description. The Son is the express image of God's person. This is the only place where the word representation is used in the entire Bible. And this word means character. He is the character of God's person. In the original meaning of character, it was an impress made by an engraving tool. As the imprint of the die perfectly represents the original design. So in Christ, there is the display for those who have who have eyes to see of God's very essence. He is the imprint, perfect representation of the original design. That is who Jesus is. The Son is also the upholder of all things. It says that there uh, in verse 3. In the, in the, uh, if I was to put an A, B, and C, and D on that, A is who being the brightness of his glory, B being the express image of his person, C upholding all things by the word of his power. So that would be 3C. Uh, some of these scriptures, you got to break them down in a little bitty chunks, you know? Well, in the New King James, this word is theron. And it meant more than just sustaining or maintaining. This word meant to bring or to carry. And this is where Paul in Colossians writes, all things were created for him and by him, all things consist. Several years ago, I preached a series with my students, and I called it the Jesus element. And one of the elements was consistency and how Christ was consistent, and he held things together. He is the binding factor of all things, and all things are held together by the word of his power. 
He is what holds it all together. When Christ is removed from this world, things are going to literally fall apart. Because he is the one who is sustaining. He is the upholder, as the original language meant. He is the upholder of all things in this world. And apart from him, things are absolutely going to fall apart. Why is that? Because he is greater. He's greater than gravity. He's greater than everything else. You know why? Because he is the creator of all those things. He is the one who holds it all together. And when the scripture states by the word of his power... This is not directly Jesus, but the word of Jesus. Now, listen, we know Jesus is holding it together because he, he is. But it says there in that passage of Scripture, um, upholding all things by the word of his power. He is the word made flesh, but this is also talking about how his word is holding it together. Yes, Jesus is the word, John 1, but in this context, the author is specifically referencing the power of Christ's word and its sustaining power. The Son is also the purifier of our sins. This would be 3D, all right? If, if you're writing those things down and taking notes. When he, had him, when he had by himself purged our sins. When he had himself purged our sins. This is clearly referenced to Christ's redemptive work at the cross. Whereby one perfect offering, he secured eternal salvation for mankind. He secured that. And this purification was obtained objectively by Christ at Calvary and is entered into subjectively by believers individually on the basis of faith. Paul wrote in Ephesians, For it is by grace through faith that you are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now that does not mean that, that that's your work. The work is Jesus Christ, life, death, resurrection. That's the work. But you place your faith in Jesus who did the work. And it is by placing your faith in Jesus that you are saved by the grace of God. You place your faith in Jesus. The word purification is most often used in the New Testament of ritual cleansing. But here it refers to the removal of sin. And Christ has effected a complete cleansing. And the purification was accomplished at Calvary, Leon Morris wrote in his commentary. And the seventh point is this. The Son is the right-hand authority of the Father to all. Look there, it says, When he had made purification, excuse me, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is known and quoted by commentaries that sitting is the posture of rest. I mean, you think about that. You've worked all day. Yesterday morning, uh, we had our food pantry. We were able to serve several people, and it was a blessing. Boy, we, when people were, we were moving, and unfortunately, we had a lot of folks out that were sick, and, but yet we were able to still serve them, and I'm telling you, it was boom, boom, boom. I mean, our runners were getting them in and getting them out. I hardly had time to pray for folks. They were getting in and out so fast. But I uh, went home, and I cut the grass, weed-eated, blew all the leaves down into a pile in different places, and when I got done, I sat down. Why is that? Because my work was done. Now, granted, I could have folded the blue jeans and I could have done a couple other things. But, uh, and they're still in the dryer, I think, this morning. But I sat down. You know why? Because my work was done. My work was done. When Jesus says it was finished on the cross, everything that Jesus had to do to accomplish salvation for mankind was done. 
And in the right place, in the right-hand position, is the place of honor. I mean, you think about it. James and John, their mama asked, you know, can, can, can my son sit on either side of you? Talking to Jesus. Jesus like, that ain't for me. You know, that ain't for me to make that decision. I mean, plus, obviously, it's going to be really hard to sit on one of the sides because the father's already sitting there. So um, that, that's not going to work. But by contrast, this is what I want you to understand. This is part of, part of the author's effort to, to give understanding about this Old Testament, Old Testament Levitical uh, acts and the rituals and things of that nature. The posture for a priest is to stand. The posture of a priest is to stand. And Jesus has completed the work and he has sat and rested and given the right hand, uh, sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Through his action and completion, Christ reveals his superiority to the prophets, as we've been talking about this morning, and as we'll look at next week, and to the angels. One commentator explained the author's writing this way. I thought this was really good. He became, is someone unexpected. Like it says, um, if you read on down a little bit further, let me read, let me read that. Having become, or he became, so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. One commentator explained this author's writing this way. He became is an un, un, unexpected uh, statement. The writer has made some strong statements about the excellence of Christ's person. And so we should expect him to describe Christ as eternally superior to the angels rather than as becoming superior to them. But... The writer says it this way because he was thinking of what the Son did in becoming man and putting away the sins of men. Of course, the Son was also eternally superior to the angels. That, however, that, however, is not what is in mind here. It was because he had put away sins that he had sat down on the throne in the place of highest honor. And it is in this aspect that he is seen greater than any angel. That's the reason why he's seen greater than any angel. And that was Morris out of his commentary. So what does all this mean to us today? What does all this mean to us today? It means, number one, God still speaks. God still speaks, but he's speaking in and through his son, and his son spoke, and it was recorded and canonized in the Scripture. That's where Jesus spoke. You want to hear Jesus? Read. If you want to hear Jesus, read. If you're out here and you're not spending any time in the Word of God and, and you're, you haven't been in the Word of God in weeks and months and you say, God spoke to me, most likely that's not God. Okay, I'm just telling you, most likely that's, that's not God speaking to you. Because God speaks through His Word. And God will speak to you when you're in His Word. But if you've not been in His Word, don't say, I've got a word from the Lord. Because most likely you don't. You've got to be in the Word of God. He still speaks. Originally, it was by the prophets that God spoke. Himself, through a dramatic action, a pre-incarnate Christ or the forefathers. That's how God originally spoke. But now, as the author wrote, God spoke through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greater prophet. Jesus is the greater prophet. Jesus is greater than any of uh, the positive words anyone else may speak into your life, Jesus is greater than any negative words anyone may speak into your life. Jesus is greater than any preacher you've had in your life. 
Jesus is greater than any Sunday school teacher you've had in your life. Jesus is just greater. He is. There's nobody greater. And if you want to really grow in your faith, grow in Jesus. Grow in his word. And Jesus is greater than your sin. He is the purifier of those sins. He's greater than your sins. And only Jesus can cleanse those sins and purify your heart. Only Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. So what are you going to do with Jesus today? Jesus is greater. Jesus is speaking. He speaks through his word. He speaks through his word. And we need to be people who are in the Word of God day in and day out. You have that opportunity. We've got daily Bible reading plans back there in the back. You can pick one of those up. If you're doing the who's your one, maybe you started late. That's okay. Those things are not really to a timetable, okay? If you come across somebody next week and you say, this person's my one, you can pick out another. You can have two or three, but I really want you to focus on one, but... If you've not named somebody yet, you can grab a bookmark, you can write their name down, and you can pray for them. Take them to the Father before you take the Father to them. Pray about them. Pray for them. He is greater. If anybody's going to save them, it's going to be Jesus. It ain't going to be me, because if I can save them, I can lose them. If you can save them, you can lose them. But if Jesus saves them, they're saved to the uttermost. As far as the east is from the west, their sins will be cast away from them. That's the reason why you bring them to Jesus. Bring them to Jesus. He is greater. 